All right, we're going to be right after our uh, scripture reading. We're just going to pick up in chapter two. It's always kind of in teaching out of a portion of the gospels. It's kind of hard to get like a running start because you're always hopping into something that Jesus is doing or something that's going on. So uh, I figured we do the scripture reading and that could kind of give us a head start into chapter two. Um, But from our scripture reading, uh, you know, we see Jesus has just healed uh, the leper. Um, You know, he tells him, don't tell anyone. What just happened? Just go and fulfill the law. Do what it says, you know, um, and just, you know, just don't tell anyone. And leper says, forget that. And he goes and tells everyone. And I think, that, <laughs> I think it's really awesome of just human nature. You know, he tells the leper, don't tell anyone. And he tells everyone. And he tells us, tell everyone. And we don't tell anyone. <laughs> right off the bat. Here we go. Uh, but because of that, because the leper... And it really just disobeys what Jesus has said. He goes out and tells everyone. You know, Jesus' fame starts spreading, right? It's going, it's going crazy. Everyone's starting to hear about what he's done and how he can heal and miraculously heal people. Um, and so they're all coming to him, you know, and we see at the end of verse 45 of chapter 1, it says they came to him from every direction, every direction to be healed. And so our setting here, verse 1 of chapter 2, says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, Capernaum, um, this is, again, he entered Capernaum when he was healing the leopard and teaching in the synagogues there. We read in our scripture reading back in 39 of chapter 1 that he was in Galilee, right? So that's where he was doing all that stuff, and now he's returning back to Capernaum, which was kind of like his home base, the forward operating base of his ministry. Um, He was sent out from there, returning there very frequently, and yet, being the city that it was, is really heartbreaking knowing that it was Jesus' kind of home base because in spite of all the teachings and the miracles that Jesus did there, the people were unrepentant. Now, verse 23 of Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Sodom would have still been standing if they had seen and those miracles had been done in there. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than you. Even though Jesus was there doing all these miracles and and teaching, (laughs) preaching the kingdom of God, ultimately they were unrepentant and let that not be said of us by any means. I mean, essentially we're kind of his home base now, right? We're his church. We're the ones that he has commanded to go out into the world. And God forbid that in spite of all the teachings and the things that we have received from him, the things that we have seen do in our lives, that we just leave it there and we still have unrepentant hearts and we don't do anything about it. Let's not be those kind of people. But that was Capernaum. And, uh, you know, it says here that it was heard that he was in the house. So obviously someone spilled the beans. Like, you know, these days, if you know, Someone would have put a tweet and everybody would have been waiting for him at the house before he even got there. But it takes time, you know, in my head, uh, you know, the amount of time it would take for word to get out, for everyone to come from all, you know, all directions to kind of fill this house. It would, I would imagine it would take a good amount of time. Um, and yet people still came. They would have to travel distances, you know. It wasn't like they had cars or anything, walking and carrying things with them, whatever the case may be. But they came from all directions into the house, which is presumably probably Simon or Peter's house. Uh, we learn from verse 29 of chapter 1 uh, that he, you know, he stayed there, which is really cool, actually, um, for just extracurricular, if you want to sometimes. They, archaeologically, they've, 
believe they have found Peter's house, uh, which is really cool study to see the strong evidence for it actually being Peter's house over there in, in Israel. Um, but Jesus kind of had this routine where he would preach in synagogues on Sundays. That's what it says. Again, going back in the setting here in verse 21 of chapter 1, it says, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. Right? He would always enter on the Sabbath, preaching the synagogues. He was doing that in Galilee. He was going around synagogue to synagogue. That's what he was doing on the Sabbath. But now, as he's gaining this fame and his reputation as a, a physical healer is spreading, he's trying to keep a low profile. He's in, he's in the house. But instead of waiting for him to enter the synagogue again, they come to him, right? He doesn't have to go to them into where they're at. They flock to him, and they visit the house in the middle of the week, which is a little, was a little odd, a little kind of against what his routine was. One commentator I read put it this way, as the king is, there is his court. <laughs> and I think that was pretty cool, a picture of it. That's where he was teaching. That's where the people wanted to be, and they wanted to hear. They wanted to get healed, you know, essentially that was what the word was going forth. It was spreading is that he was going to heal people. And they, they pack it out. In verse 2, immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. I mean, you can't, obviously those houses are much more, you know, humble, very, a lot smaller, especially even in like this building. But can you imagine this place like packed out, like standing room only, to hear the word of God preached. Like people are outside in the, in the courtyard, throw speakers out there. They're like breaking down windows so that way they can hear. Like they, were, they just wanted to be near him so badly. And it's so, this picture in my mind is, I don't know if I can articulate it adequately, but there's just, it's so cool. Like there's no closed door on Jesus' hospitality, right? It's not like <laughs> you would call Pastor Will up in the middle of the week with some issue that you're having, and he's like, yeah, but I'm, I'm preaching on Sunday, and you can hear about it then. Like, there's none of that going on. They come to meet Jesus where he's at, and he's going to minister them right where they're at, and there is no proper time for ministering to other people, right? We are, we are followers of Christ 24-7, and if the Lord is bringing someone to you, then you minister to them the best way you can in that moment, Right? You don't say, well, well, don't try to push it off you know, as much as possible. You want to minister to them right in that moment. I think it was um, uh, Tozer, A.W. Tozer, that said, if you're only worshiping God on Sundays, then you're really not worshiping him at all. And I think that kind of is, can be said in ministry, too. Like, if you're only coming to just minister to people on Sundays, and it's not something you're actually doing throughout the week as the Lord brings people into your life, then are you really ministering? Because it's not really costing you anything. You were just going to come to church anyways. Where's the sacrifice in that? But he, they came, couldn't even get near the door, hanging in the windows. And it says he preached the word to them. And that is why he came. Verse 38, chapter 1. Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this, for this purpose I have come forth. And in Luke's account of this, this same encounter that's going on here, um, Luke records that he says, I've come to preach the kingdom of God. That was why he came. It wasn't like preaching in this sense, like is what is happening right now. It was just sitting, talking to them conversationally about the kingdom of God. And I just, this is one of those moments where like, man, if I could have been a fly on the wall <laughs> in, that, in that room, to hear him just talk and, and conversationally from 
the king of kings, about the kingdom of God. Even if that wasn't necessarily what they came for. <laughs> they, might have, they might have just come to, to be healed, to be touched. His ministry had essentially been turned into a healing campaign, which I'll just say as a side note, there are a lot of people trying to copy that aspect of Jesus' ministry these days. There are healing tours, right? healing revivals and things like that. And I think if Jesus was trying to avoid that being his reputation, then we should too. Because Jesus, Jesus healed because he was gracious and compassionate, not because it was his business model. And a lot of these people are doing it as a business model for their own profit, their own gain, their own glory. And yet Jesus, even though that's what they came for, he says, yeah, I'm, I'm going to preach the word. That's not what you need. And we'll get into that later. But verse 3 says, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And the King James Version, I think it says, uh, bringing uh, someone who was sick of the palsy. That's just like, I don't even know what that means. I guess it means a paralytic. But that's like 1800 speak for the paralytic, I guess. Um, but that's... The Gospels always blow my mind and what is in them and what's not in them because that's all we know about this man. We don't know his name. We don't know if he was married, right? If he had a family, you know, all we know was his condition. We don't know how he became a paralytic, if it was, if he fell off a roof, if he was born this way, if he lived this way his entire life, if he only lived this way for a few years. We only know him by his condition, and we can therefore assume, based off historical context, that he was probably seen as a burden in the community because he wouldn't be able to do anything for himself. He lived a life. There was no modern medicine right, that we have today. He more than likely lived a life of pain and, and discomfort, depending completely on others to take care of him, to dress him, to feed him. All we know, he was a paralytic. We don't even know his name. And we don't even know the name of these four men, but man, I want to be like these four men. I pray I can be like these four men. We don't even know who they are. They're just four men. Four men, just four random guys, four friends. There are a lot of great names in the Bible. There are a lot of great people who are not named in it too. We don't know where they came from. I think, man, there's, got, there's a lesson in there for us too, though, because if we're seeking out just to be one of the named ones, then we've got it all wrong, right? These men are just serving the Lord day in and day out, who, not even probably knowing that they would be written in, the, land, in you know, the word of God one day. And now we don't even know who, what their names are, but we know them by their faith and by their love for this friend and the fervency of their faith. Like that should be our motivation as well, not about making some name for ourselves, I lost my train of thought. I wasn't, that wasn't in the notes. <laughs> so his friends, yeah, yeah. So his friends, they come pick him up, four guys. We don't know how long they had been even carrying him. Obviously, in these things, like, my mind is just going, like, question after question. Like, what's going on? Like, there's a lot of things we don't really know about in here, Lord. We know you've given us these for a reason, but what about these other things, you know, that we have to speculate on? We don't really know how long they had been carrying him. I mean, a grown man that is just dead weight is not light, 
<laughs> not light by any means. It's not like this man can help them carry him. I was in the uh, uh, police academy before we got married, and one of the drills that they, any instructor at any time could do was called officer down. And he could be in the middle of a sentence or some other instructor could just walk in and yell, officer down. And immediately there was this 150 pound dummy that was either in one of two places. It was in the corner of our classroom or is in a squad car in a field like 100 to 150 yards away. And if they, if anybody yelled officer down, the whole class had either take it from the classroom to the car or if it was in the car, go get it from the car and bring it back to the classroom. And you're running with a 150-pound deadweight dummy, and you've got four men carrying him, and that's what we did. The four, four people would carry the dummy, and everyone else in the class had to run circles around them while we're running. And as you got tired, you just tagged in. <laughs> 150 pounds. It's heavy. I'm telling you right now, it's heavy. I, mean, it's just an av- I don't know that's how much this guy weighed. I'm just saying, let's just average it out here. If, you, if he even was 150 pounds deadweight, he's heavy. And we don't know how long they'd even been carrying him. And they've been, no doubt, heard of Jesus' healing power, and I just, I mean, how, how precious and compassionate and loving that they, would, they are. That they would be willing to carry their friend who has suffered so long to the feet of Jesus. And if I can encourage you this evening, if we must be willing to do this for others, because who knows when we will need others to do this for us. Who knows when we will need others to spiritually or physically carry us to the feet of Jesus, emotionally encouraging us, physically dragging us because we don't want to go to church and like, no, you're coming to church. You need to get to the feet of Jesus. We need other people to do this for us sometimes. And so we need to be those kind of people for others. And so I'm going to ask some questions for us here this evening. And the the first one is, is is a lack of love for the lost stopping you from bringing them to Jesus? I assume we probably, everyone in this room has friends who are unbelievers. I think it'd be hard not to. But are, are we willing to carry them to the feet of Jesus? You know, to actually, to bring them because they are dead in their trespasses and sins, by way of metaphor, spiritually paralyzed, right? They're dead. And we're the ones that have to do all the work, right? The Spirit Holy Spirit does his part, but we are the ones that the Holy Spirit uses, so we have to take the first step. It's kind of on us to go to them. It's a part of a miracle and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit drawing them to himself. We're the ones going to them, and we pursue them just like Jesus pursued us, just willing to go through whatever it takes to carry them to the feet of Jesus, just like these men did. And are we willing to do that, to go through that, to make that sacrifice, whatever it takes? And to, to go beyond just bringing them because just bringing this man wasn't enough for these friends. And verse four says, and when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. They uncovered, oh man, I don't even, let's just picture this for a moment if we can. They uncovered the roof where he was. Now, there are some people out there who say that Jesus was teaching in the upper room like the rabbis used to do. That's what they would do. Um, I don't agree with that statement at all because I don't, one, I don't really think that was kind of Jesus' persona was to stay in these stately houses of the rabbis. Um, this was a much more common, modest, single-story home. Um, 
And if they're crowding around the door to get in, and Jesus is preaching in an upper room, then how, do they, how, are, they, how are they hearing him? There's one idea, but there's lots of discussion about whether or not they actually took apart the roof or they just lowered him in through an opening that was already there because of the type of house that it was. And if that's the case, though, I would, you know, why not just say, oh, they took the steps up to the roof and they lowered him in through the provided hole. Not as, not as uh, you know, as uh, descriptive as a story. And then what's the point of the Holy Spirit riding here through, you know, Peter dictating to Mark when they had broken through? What's the point of saying they had broken through if they were just lowering him through a hole that was already existing? And I think that perspective really downgrades the faith and the fervency of these men. We, you know, they were going to get to Jesus one way or another. Nothing was going to stop them. And again, that ties in to those lost in our lives. What's, what's stopping us? What's stopping us from bringing these people to Jesus? Now, obviously, this wasn't their original plan. It's not like they expected to get there and have, you know, 100 people around the house, you know, trying to get in. They weren't going to be able to get in at all. So it's not like they brought tools to take apart someone's roof in this journey. You know, and, and these, these modest homes... And that day, we were pretty accessible by outside stairways, you know, and they had like a flat roof that was kind of like a, like a patio up on the roof made of, you know, they had beams and, and thatch and dirt and, and some tile. Some of them were tiled over in Luke's account. And, you know, it says that they lowered him through the tiling. And they didn't bring any tools with him, but it, it could be taken apart. I mean, not without like a lot of effort, a lot, a lot of sweat, a lot of dedication, and definitely not inconspicuously. You're not just tearing apart a roof without anybody noticing. I don't know if they fashioned some sort of shovel or they just started clawing out the roof with their bare hands, but they were dedicated and they were going to get to Jesus. Just bringing him wasn't enough. They were going to get to Jesus. And you just imagine as Jesus is preaching the word, you know, downstairs and like dirt's falling on his head and on people's heads as they're listening, like what, what the heck is going on up there? Like, and these like people are talking, they're getting all distracted. I mean, you think a cell phone in the going off in the service is distracting when the roof starts falling in. I'm sure you're not paying attention to what he's saying. And if he's sitting there and he's got this noise and the dirt's falling and what's going on, does he just try to ignore it? He's like, the kingdom of God, you know, he's like, the kingdom, and like the dirt is just trying to get sentence out. Like, does he just sit there and wait? Like he's got, okay, we'll just wait till this is over and then we'll continue. I don't, you know, <laughs> these, these pictures, it's all, you know, speculation, but they get through, they break through the roof and they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. I mean, maybe there was rope on the roof, you know, I picture this, you know, if he's laying on this bed like this mat, laying down, grown man, let's go based off of averages, 5'11". Like, that's a big hole <laughs> to lower him down. <laughs> I did hear one pastor say, he's like, that seems too ridiculous. I think they just made a hole like this big and they strapped him to it and they just lowered him down, <laughs> you know, like that. <laughs> that's a pretty big hole. That takes a lot of time. A lot of obstacles in your way. And so the second question I have for us here this evening is are you letting obstacles or distractions stop you from getting to Jesus or stop you from bringing other people to him. Maybe spiritually, 
you're at the door and you should be ripping up the roof. You shouldn't just stop there. Oh, I can't, I can't get to him. I can't. It's kind of an inconvenience right now. I can't really bring this person. Life's too busy. Well, then make time. <laughs> make time for him. We fill our time with the things that show, with the things that we make our priorities. It's easy to get to work on time. Remember to, well, sometimes put the kids to bed on time. <laughs> Eat our three meals a day. Do all these other things. And then we say, oh, life's too busy to make time for Jesus. Or, <laughs> this is, I don't, I don't know, this is not a shot at anybody. Unless the Lord is convicting you, then it's at you. But I hear more frequently, I hear, oh, I don't like to read. <laughs> that one really makes me laugh. It's like, I mean, one, we have the technology that can literally read it for you. I don't know if that's always the most, the best way to read the word of God, but I don't necessarily like to eat vegetables, but I do periodically because I know I should, and I should set a good example for my kids, you know, and I know that those, those things are good for my physical well-being. When it comes to our spiritual well-being, it's like, nah, I don't, I don't really like to read. I know Tom shared this morning, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. You know, or maybe what's stopping you from getting to Jesus is the fact that the Bible is too hard to understand. And I get that in some ways. There's a lot of things that maybe take a little bit of deeper study and dedication to really pull out what the word is actually saying, but you're definitely not going to understand it better by not being in it, <laughs> tell you that. And that's why we have this beautiful gift and command from the Lord of discipleship. Get someone to disciple you, come along with you, help you understand and study the word. The fact that, oh, it's too hard to understand is probably a worse excuse than even not liking to read because we have access to, to one another and to fellowship and grow together through this beautiful discipleship and unity that we have in the Lord. And I think another really common reason that maybe people or distracted, or they see as an obstacle to, to getting to Jesus, or maybe even as an obstacle, and you've heard friends who you've invited, you know, to church, or come to church, or come to some event, or have a Bible study, or just even to a discipleship, you know, it's just, I'm really struggling with this sin, I just feel ashamed to go to Jesus. Like, I can't, I can't go to him. Like, I know he knows what I'm doing is wrong, and that is all the more reason why you just run, fall flat on your face before the Lord. I mean, that is, that's why he died as a man. You know, as Pastor Tom talked about this morning, that's why he died, so we can have that intimate relationship with the creator, with, with God. If he didn't do it as a man, then there would be this, this separation where like, okay, well, he did, of course he was able to walk on <laughs> perfectly, you know, on the earth. He's God. Yeah, no, but he was also a man. And he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that lie that the enemy tells us of like, God, you know, Jesus doesn't want you to come to him because of your sin or he just feeds it into you and you keep beating yourself over and over and over again because you're ashamed of it and you don't want to go to the Lord. First John 1, 9, what does it say? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not just that, takes it a step further and cleanse us from all unrighteousness not just forgiving us, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. A couple weeks ago, I was in a real, um, I guess you could say like a spiritual funk, where I was just angry at like everything. I don't even know why. I used to be a very angry person before I came to the Lord. 
My mom can tell you that. Um, <laughs> she can probably tell you lots of stories. Um, and it had been a long time since I had felt this way. And I was like, what is going on in my heart? And the beautiful thing about feeling that way after, you know, just being in the word more and, and growing in him and, is I could just go to the Lord and I could let him have it. Because <laughs> he can take it. And that's what he wants. That's what he died for. So we can do that. To come to him, to lay at his feet, to approach the throne of grace. He already knows what's in our heart anyways. It's not like you're hiding anything from him. So just let him have it. That's what he wants. To build that relationship. That's what takes it from religion to relationship, you know. And feeling like you can't just, there's this wall. The veil was torn. Go before the Lord. Bring it before him. On the other side of that, what's stopping an obstacle or distraction from stopping you from getting to Jesus or, or bringing other people to him? It's easy to be like, oh, well, my, li- my family lives far away. It's kind of, you know, it's hard to reach them as if prayer is inhibited by distance. Or, you know, they really don't want to hear about Jesus. No, nobody wants to hear about Jesus. Nobody wants to hear about their sin and there's, they can't do it on their own and, and Aside from the cross, they're going to hell. Nobody wants to hear that, but we need to hear it. They need to hear that. The world needs to hear that. Or maybe the thought of, well, if I, in, if I invite them to church, then let me see, I got to wake up earlier, which means I got to drive well, that direction. Church is this way, but, but they're that way. I mean, I got to wake up and I got to go. And after church, I got I to bring them all the way past my house you know, to drop them off and, and then I got to come home. And we start like reasoning our way out of bringing people to Jesus. I know sometimes it's, you know, there are certain things where it's difficult. You know, stay at home, you know, moms, which I am convinced is one of the most blessed and difficult jobs in the world. Sometimes it's hard to feel like, well, I'm just, I'm just home. Mom, I'm supposed to bring other people to Jesus. I'm not saying I can necessarily sympathize on, on the same level, but in that way, I'd encourage all of us, there should always be at least one aspect of our life where we're in the world. <laughs> to, be, to be a light in that darkness, in whether you know, mommy and me classes or doing extracurricular things with the kids, there should always be some aspect of our life where we're out in the world so that way we can do this, so that way we can bring people to Jesus because that's what we've been, we've been commanded to do. And these men, they were, n- nothing stopped them. They were not inhibited by any obstacles, anything that came their way. It's like, check off the list. Oh, okay, well, the house is full. All right, we'll go up onto the roof. Oh, okay, let's go up onto the roof. Oh, we don't have any tools. Oh, okay, we'll just dig a hole. Uh, how are we going to get them down? Uh, we'll make some rope. I know <laughs> they could have stopped many steps of the way, and they didn't. Nothing stopped them from bringing their friend. They knew one thing, and that was their friend needed to get to Jesus, and that was going to happen. And they could have called it quits any step of the way if they realize the amount of effort and dedication and sacrifice that it would take to actually get him there. But getting to and bringing someone to Jesus is going to take effort, dedication, and sacrifice. And are we willing to overcome whatever is in our way to make that happen? And how willing we are to do whatever it takes really depends on how strong our faith is. In verse 5, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. When Jesus saw 
their faith. Not, not heard it. All he heard was them banging on the roof. But he saw their faith. And brothers and sisters, listen, in, in many ways, our faith should be seen before it's heard. Because faith is affirmed through our actions, right? We know the word says that in James 2.18. When James writes, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Like if I go up to someone and say, hey, show me your faith without your works. And they're like, perfect, I have faith. And then they just like sit on the couch. Like, do you, do you or do you not have faith? You're just kind of sitting there. James said, no, I'll show you my faith by my works. Our faith is affirmed in our actions. And in Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13, in the same city in Capernaum, you know, there's the, the account of the centurion coming to Jesus because his servant, and he's asking his servant to be healed. And he has this discourse with Jesus, and Jesus says, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. It was a centurion's faith that knew that Jesus could heal without even bringing his servant to Jesus. Jesus could heal him from a distance. And he did. And he acted on it, and he believed it. And he went to Jesus for it. Our faith should be seen before it is heard. And then when you tell someone you're a Christian, it shouldn't surprise them based off of your actions and the way you're living. Jesus saw their faith. And I pray that our faith can be seen and it can be heard. You know, like, like Paul writes uh, uh, to uh, the Romans. Man, this is like a prayer for our church and for every church that is faithfully preaching the word of God. When he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That's faith that I want. That's faith that I'm trusting we all want to have. And then Jesus says, son, I mean, just to, whew, just to sit and just hear the voice of Jesus call you son. Son. Again, not even by his name, not by his condition, but who Jesus saw him as, son. Your sins are forgiven you. And this is a crazy statement because one way is, hold up, the only way to really do that was to go to Jerusalem and make a sacrifice, right? Like this man is saying, your sins are forgiven you. And if I'm the paralytic, I'm thinking like, that's it? after all the things that my friends just went through and, and the distance we've traveled and all these other people have like witnessed us tearing apart this dude's roof. I don't even know how he's going to repair it. And that's all you've got for me after everything that we went through. You, how, how can you even say that? Uh, but I think here's the truth is when you're face to face with the pure, holy, righteous, and just God, the first thing you're aware of is your sin. The first thing, I think all that other stuff kind of fades to the background. Like, if he's face to face with God, who became flesh, I'd imagine he probably didn't realize he was a paralytic anymore when he heard the voice of Jesus say, Son, drawing him in with compassion and love and tenderness and telling him, Your sins are forgiven. And I imagine his friends like peeling, peering down through the roof, like, no, 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 his, his, do the healing thing. <laughs> that, that's like the whole reason we brought him here was for, so he could, you know, stand up. That's what are you doing? Your sins are forgiven. That doesn't help us. That's not what we came here for. But honestly, I mean, what, 
if that was the purpose that they brought him, if Jesus answered that purpose, what would healing him really have done? Honestly, like, what would, what would he really have done? He's, this man's still going to grow old. Like, oh, congratulations, now you can walk into hell. Like, that, what is <laughs> that doesn't really make a difference. Being paralyzed or any other illness is only the effect of the same cause, sin. That's it, because sin is in the world. And so the third question for us this evening is that we stopped bringing people to Jesus because we are bringing them for the wrong reasons and haven't seen change. The temptation, I think, for us, Tom talked about temptation this morning, I think, is that we want Jesus to heal first so then people can believe. Do this work in their life first, Lord, so that way they can see how real you are. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think absolutely we should be praying for these things, for family members healing, for financial provision, all the, the trials and tribulations of life, the people that things are struggling with. We should be praying and asking the Lord to move, especially in the lives of unbelievers in that way. But do we want unbelievers to have their physical material, material needs met more than we want their sins to be forgiven? More than that, we should be praying that the scales would be falling from their eyes, that the, the veil would be lifted, that the blind would see, and as Paul writes in Second Corinthians, that the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, would shine on them. That's what we should be praying for them first. Because that's ultimately what they need more than anything else. Everything else is just an effect of the same cause. Now, understandably, making a statement like this, telling someone your sins are forgiven, kind of rocks the boat a little, maybe makes a few people upset. Uh, Verse six, and some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That phrase reasoning in their hearts just means to bring together different reasons. They're trying to make sense of what was being said, right? They're kind of mulling it over, trying to figure it out. And honestly, the questions they asked were valid. They had a right to ask them, you know, if um, it definitely was blasphemy if this man just said that, you know, he could forgive sins. Their doctrine was true. Their application was false. You know, they just had to put two and two together. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Oh. <laughs> you know. They knew the word. They knew what the law was. They knew what the prophets had said. Isaiah 43, 25, God says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. They should have known that. They're just putting two and two together. The doctrine was true. Their application was false. And Luke, Luke's account, it says these scribes, these Pharisees, came from, and we know, we know that they had come to him from every direction, And then Luke goes on to say they came from every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Every town these Pharisees and these scribes had come from all over the place. I mean, Jerusalem was approximately like 80 miles away from Capernaum. That's how far the word spread that Jesus was doing these things, and that's how far they traveled ready to pounce on Jesus the minute that he slipped up. They were willing to do that. Ready to judge him and criticize him. And yet that does not stop Jesus from making this 
profound and albeit really offensive statement in their presence. And so the fourth question I have for us this evening is, are the critical judgmental eyes and words of the world stopping you from getting to or bringing others to Jesus? I have to believe that the presence of Pharisees and scribes of the law and stuff like that traveling from every town in Galilee and Judea, 80 miles away from Jerusalem, their presence probably didn't go unnoticed. And yet that still didn't hinder these men from getting their friend to Jesus. It didn't stop them from doing something really pretty radical. And they, were not, they didn't care what other people had to say and what others thought. They didn't care if the self-righteous religious leaders chided them or they didn't care if their actions offended anybody. They were getting to Jesus. I fear that in many ways the lines have become so blurred in our lives because of our culture that we have stopped bringing people to Jesus because they might get offended. I know it's a temptation in my life. I don't want to offend anyone. I just want to love them. And the danger of that is because of what others might think, then you just start playing your faith safe. <laughs> There's nothing radical about your faith anymore. The passion, the conviction is there in your heart, but it's just there. It's not anywhere else. It's not lived out anywhere else. And the world is... It's ready to pounce. It's ready. It's coming from miles away. It's wherever you go. It's the Pharisees and the scribes of the law ready to jump on everything you say and attack and smother and cancel anyone who utters the name of Jesus. The world's ready to do that. And so we're like, okay, don't, don't offend anybody. Let's play it safe. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13 Verse 5, it says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And because of that, so we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Is the prom- are the promises of God not enough for us anymore? That he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What can man do to us? What, I mean, why are we so afraid of offending someone? These men weren't. They didn't care. They were going to bring people to Jesus, and that should be our focus too. Verse 8 it says, But immediately when Jesus, immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Perceived in his spirit. Again, he knows what's going on. He knew it was up. You can't hide anything from him. When Jesus writes, um, you know, dictates to John the letter of the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, Jesus describes himself as the one who searches. I am he who searches the minds and hearts. He already knows what's going on in there, which is either really comforting or really unfortunate. <laughs> and if I'm the, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, I was probably already shook by the statement of saying him saying that your sins are forgiven you, and now he knows what's going on in my heart. Again, that should have already told them that he was God. 
I should have just confirmed it. And they're still missing it. They're still not applying what he's saying to their heart and to their lives. And Jesus goes on and he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. I mean, how, how can you prove someone's sins are forgiven? Like, there's not really any physical representation of that. He just says it. And it would be easy to go around saying that, walking through, hey, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Like, they're not going to be able to prove it. They're like, oh, cool, thanks, you know, or like, what? What are you talking about? How can you prove that? <laughs> Especially, <laughs> he says this to a paralytic who would have been like the burden in the community. They're like, what? His sins are forgiven. And back then, in, in Jewish culture and the Pharisees and stuff like that, it was, you had some sort of physical condition like that. They saw it as God's judgment on you. Well, you, you disobeyed God, so you're, you're a paralytic now. And so he's saying this to this guy, and they're like, what, what in the world? What is, he, what is he saying? And he says, arise, take up your bed, and walk. It is easy to go around going, hey, finger guns, hey, sins are forgiven. But to actually tell somebody, arise, take up your bed, and walk, you better hope that they're going to do that <laughs> if you have the confidence to say it. You better hope they're going to do that. Makes me think of uh, Peter and John and Acts as they're walking through, walking out of the city by the gate, beautiful, in Acts chapter 3. It says, Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms for those who entered the temple, who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms. And fixing his eyes on them with John, Peter's like, you know, they're both, there he is. Peter said, look at us, commanding him, look at us. And so he gave them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. And then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And this is the, this is the crazy part. He took him by the right hand and lifted him up. What if he took him by the right hand, lifted him up, let go, and the dude just fell back down? <laughs> like, the Lord is saying these things, addressing the greatest need that man has of to have his sins forgiven, and then going beyond that and telling him he can heal the physical infirmities that he's dealing with too. But Jesus, Jesus would not have cured the disease, the effect, if he could not have taken away the sin. Because that was the cause. And if you're just treating the one, then you're really not helping him out at all. You're just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Now, understandably, these men probably had no idea that Jesus would respond this way. You know, they're like, we just want this dude to be healed. 
Now this is like this whole spectacle. He's getting in with the Pharisees. He's making these people uncomfortable. He's making these crazy, you know, statements. Uh, he's God. But they believed he could heal their friend's condition. And that belief was enough to bring him there. And then the king of kings could do so much more. He could go beyond just healing the condition. He says, nah, the condition's like secondary to what you really need. You need your sins to be forgiven. And I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to forgive the cause of the disease. And so the last question that I have for us this evening is have we stopped going to Jesus or bringing others to Jesus because of our unbelief? That kind of ties in with the third question, but again, their actions proved that they believed Jesus could do this. They had heard that he could do this. That wasn't just gathering around his house for no reason. And they would not have gone through all of this like work, effort, sacrifice, dedication, all those things we talked about if they didn't think Jesus was actually capable of doing this. And the result of that faith and that fervency in that is this dude waltzes out the front door, complete obedience to Jesus, not even forgetting his bed. Like he doesn't just run out. Like he obeys every word. Hey, rise, take up your bed and go to your house. Oh, okay, cool. I, I can stand now. He's <laughs> like, What? And the result of that, because, excuse me, because of the belief that these men have that Jesus could do these things. In verse 12, as the worship team comes up, verse 12, it says, Immediately he arose, immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. We've never seen this before in our lives. He's forgiven sins and proved that he can forgive sins because he healed the man. We've never seen anything like this. They leave glorifying God. And this can only be the result of and the reaction of people if we're bringing them to Jesus. You, we want to see him save, and we want to see him heal, and we want to see him restore, and we want to see him bring growth in our own lives. And if, you are, if we are not bringing people to Jesus or going to himself for these needs, then I promise you we never will see him move in this way. We're not. We're not going to see him move. We're not going to see revival that needs to start in our own, house, our own hearts from a deeper conviction and power of the gospel to go forth. And we want to see and we pray for the Lord for do all these things. And yet we don't have the belief or we don't take the steps necessary to get people to Jesus. We stop at the door and we say, oh my, we need to start clawing down roofs, people. <laughs> and doing whatever it takes. Because that's, what their ultimately, ultimate need is in the world, that's what the Lord did for us. He took the first step. He gave up his deity to come and walk on this earth. He stopped at nothing. He went to the cross. 
And we have to be willing to do the same. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that there are even men like this in your word who maybe are unnamed to us, but they are not unnamed to you. You know exactly who they are. And I pray that we would be men and women who have this faith and fervency to go to you on our own, Lord, when we're struggling, and to bring others to you. Because we need you. We desperately need you. This world desperately needs you. We need to stop putting band-aids on sin and getting comfortable with it. Father, help our unbelief in the ways where maybe we've tried, we've wanted, we're bringing people for the wrong reasons, Lord. Convict us, convict me to go out and be bold with the gospel, Lord, to bring people in because they're sinners and they are destined for hell without you. Father, I pray that our hearts would break for what breaks yours in this world, that you would give us your love for the world around us and we would be willing to stop at nothing, that we would not get hindered and distracted by everything that's going on, Lord. Our focus would be solely on you for the purpose that you have created us, to bring you glory and to share and spread your gospel in the world. And so I pray for these things, Lord. I pray for our hearts. And I ask that you would just continue to be blessed now, Lord, as we worship you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.